Good morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together. Did you see the sun today? It's unbelievable. Hey, if you're a guest here, my name's Mark, and we're really glad that you're here. I'm one of the pastors, and we've been working our way this year through uh, the storyline of the Bible. So there's 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, and they all actually hold together in one story. And the story is all about the person and work of God's promised Son and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're moving from an important section called the history section of the Old Testament to what's sometimes called the wisdom or poetry. So just kind of to, to, to go through it. So the first five books of the Bible are the law, so the Torah. That would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law. Then you've got the 12 books of history from Joshua all the way through Esther, 12 books. The first nine are the history of Israel, their relationship with God, moving into the promised land, and it's before their rebellion against God and God pull them off to exile, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, which is the last three, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So now we come to the middle of our Bible, we come to wisdom literature. When you think about wisdom in our day, it's easy to think a wise person is someone who has a lot of knowledge. And the way the Bible works it out, if you think about the Bible's answer, you go, yeah, that's actually what I think about it too. So it's not just, it's just not knowledge, but it's applied knowledge. So a good understanding biblically, definition biblically of wisdom is the skill for living in a God-honoring way. So say that with me. The skill for living in a God-honoring way. That's what wisdom is. It's something that God gives, and it's something that we can pursue. And so um, there's a repeated phrase in the Bible in wisdom literature. It's this, the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, when you first hear it, means, what, what, does that mean I'm supposed to be afraid of the Lord? Uh, afraid of God? Well, in this sense that we would have uh, awe, reverence of God, yes, but not afraid of God like we, we, we could never approach God, and, or we can't, apart from the fact that he loves us and wants to pursue us in a relationship. And so the fear of the Lord, this repeated phrase, is all about seeing God for who he really is and responding in trust, in a trust that is marked with reverence and awe of affection and joy and humble obedience. So seeing God for who he is and responding in this reverent, affectionate, humble obedience. That's the fear of the Lord. And what we're going to see is the wisdom literature connects to the storyline of the Bible in this way. It helps us take the law and apply the law, live out the law in everyday life in this broken, twisted, fallen, messed up world. And Jesus reminds us that, yeah, there's lots and lots of laws I forget what it is. It's like 930 laws, 803, I forget what it is. It's like hundreds of laws. And he says, here's what all the laws are really all about. Loving God with all your heart, whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's how the law is summarized. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. So let me just go back. So then what wisdom literature is helping us do is explain what does it look like today in a broken world that's twisted and bent and so is my heart what does it look like 
to love God and my neighbor. Job's unique contribution is what does it look like to love God and my neighbor when I'm going or they're going through difficulty, suffering, okay? So grab your Bible. We're in the book of Job. So the book of Job is kind of right in the middle. Actually, Psalms is right in the middle. So right to the left of Psalms. It's right after Esther. If you're new to the Bible, always a good place to go. Just grab the table of contents, and you'll probably get there faster than most of us. So the book of Job. Now, we're, gonna, we're going to... We are going to learn some things about Job that he didn't know as we follow him through this storm. We're going to have an advantage that he never had, and honestly, we never have. So we get this whole understanding of the backdrop of why he's going through a storm and this bet, this wager in heaven between God and the devil. We actually know how it all ends in chapter 42 when we read to the end of the story. He has no clue that he's going to get everything back that he lost two times and that he's going to live another 140 years. So we're given all kinds of advantages that Job never had. But in reality, as Job's going through it in real time, it's just like how we go through it in real time. And there's a really interesting thing that happens in the book of Job. And it has to do with the wager. Why does he fear God? And it has to do with the conclusion of his friends when they find out their friend Job has really gone through a lot of hard things and trying to figure out how should we think about that. The book of Job is going to help us do a lot about how should we think about suffering, especially about faith, and especially about who God is in our suffering. But let me give you kind of an example story of what happened in Job's life to kind of catch us up modern day. So there's this man at our old church, college church. His name was Ken Taylor, great man. He was one of the elders. I called him the E.F. Hutton. Guys that are younger, you don't know this commercial, but, you know, when Ian Huffman speaks, everybody what? Listen, see, you're all the older cronies. We know that. All right, so you just learned something about the 60s or 70s or 80s. I don't know. So he was just that kind of a guy. He was just super wise. And I would say I've never seen the gift of faith more exemplified in a person's life, Ken Taylor great man of faith. Had 10 kids. He was the head of Tyndale Publishing in Wheaton, Illinois. And he was the author of the Living Bible. And the story of the Living Bible is when he was commuting down in Chicago where he's working at Moody Press, he was going back and forth on the train and he would paraphrase the Bible so that his kids, 10 kids, could understand it. Because all that we had back then was the King James, and the King James English literally goes back to 1611. It's really hard for kids to understand, even big kids, to understand the King James today. So that's what he did. And uh, he had written some devotionals for kids. Some of us have those books, remember those books, growing up with those books. And he thought, you know what, I'm going to try and publish these things. He'd already been a publisher, done stuff for kids. He said, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pu-. Nobody wanted to publish his paraphrase of portions of the Bible. So he started Tyndale Publishing in his garage. He said, if nobody else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. And it's kind of a real slow start. Nobody really knows about it until the Living Letters gets in the hands of Billy Graham, and Billy Graham goes, this is awesome. And I'm going to communicate it to all the people that I serve around the world and the country, and it just took off. And so off he went, and he published the rest of 
the Bible. It was called the Living Bible. Some of us still can see that padded green cover and go, oh, yeah. It was so great to read the paraphrase of the Living Bible because, like, I got to understand it. So in the midst of all of this, something happens to Ken, and he loses his voice. And for the 23 years I worked at College Church, he had never had his voice. I mean, he could, he could, he could just kind of scratch out words, and you could kind of understand it, but it was that hard. And so there were these people in his life and around the country, not everybody, who started to figure out this. Maybe what's going on here, I think this is what's going on here, is Ken Taylor's been messing with God's word. And God's hand of judgment is on him. You think they were right? It's the same kind of dynamic that happens in the book of Job. And so as we get to verses 1 through 5, we're going to understand something really important so that we don't get goofed up like his friends. Because chapters 4 through like 30-something are all about his friends who are trying to convince him, Job, the reason you're suffering is because you sinned big time. And so just fess up, and God's going to release his hand of judgment against you, and he's going to bless you and no longer curse you, so just own up to it. And so the writer wants us to know about the character. And one of the things we're going to learn is Job is a righteous man. He's a godly man. He loves God. He loves his neighbor. He is a compassionate man. He's a merciful man. He's a just man to the people who are on the margins, whether it's the dying, the widow, the poor, the oppressed. He's a good man. But man, as he go through it, that righteous Job suffers. We need to know that before the storm. That's verses 1 through 5. And then the second thing we need to know is that in the midst of his chaotic storm that just looks just like that, like it makes no sense, that actually God is seated on the throne. We get a picture of heaven that we need to see and need to remember when we go through the storms of life. All right, so we'll pick up the first part about the character of Job. Verse 1, you there? In the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Ken probably translated that. He was wealthy. He was a millionaire many times over, all right? He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they'd invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So there's a fourfold description. You see it? It's repeated two more times. So three times we learn this about Job. Blameless, man of integrity, upright. That has to do with how he treated people. He was concerned about justice and mercy. He feared God. Oh, he's, he's an example of what a wise person looks like. That's what we need to understand when we're reading Job and what a wise person looks like in the midst of going through unbelievable hard things. He feared God. That means he, he, he had awe and reverence for God. He, he had love for God, and he was walking in humble obedience. And he shunned evil. 
He was tempted like any of us, right? Even Jesus was tempted in every way which we were, yet without sin. He was tempted, but he shunned it. He shunned. He goes, no, that's bad. That's bad. Send it away. That stuff will take you down and away and bring you to a bad place. So he's a wealthy man. He's a godly man. He's greatest in position, in possessions, and in character. And his concern for his own heart was the concern he had for his children's heart. So whenever they were having a party and maybe drinking too much, he would just want to make sure, man, I don't know what they could have said or done, but I just want to, he's like a priest. I'm going to offer sacrifices for my kids so that God would be merciful to them. That was his regular custom. So the, the, the story that the film of Job opens and the lenses on the land of Uz and on the man Job. And now scene two, we're, we're in the courtroom of heaven, verse six. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Sound familiar, right? Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him, protected him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well. Then everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here we go. What we notice in heaven is God is ruling. The angels, Satan himself, all clear through God. Satan needs his permission to follow up on the bet. What is the bet? My bet is if you quit being this guy's sugar daddy, and, and put down the protective fence and let me get after him and, and take away some of your blessing, I'll bet you it'll curse you to your face and never have anything to do with you again. And so God says, game on. The bet is on. So what happens? The storm. It begins in verse 13. And imagine this happening, and Jesus' brother, James, the author of the letter in the New Testament, lets us know that this isn't a, a, a myth, this isn't a, a parable, this, this is a historical story of a man who likely lived back in the time of the patriarchs. His name actually means persecuted one. And so here's the story, and can you imagine going through this day? One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, 
Another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the Olus brothers' house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Satan's attacks are coming in waves here. Each messenger bringing big enough, bad enough, heartbreaking news that it could just take him down. So his livestock and his, his wealth destroyed, stolen. His 10 children, their spouses, did they have 40? Did they have 50? Did they have 60 grandkids together? I mean, all of that gone. Peter in the New Testament describes the enemy as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so it's not surprising that there's these repeated attacks going on in his life, not just in chapter 1, but next week we'll see in chapter 2, you know, Satan wants to kind of double or nothing the bet. And his body is ravaged with sores and boils. And then the third attack is when his own wife says, Job, come on, this is too hard. You just need to curse God and die and get it over with. And so this is an example of so many of the storms of life where it's like, I like to say it this way, lightning striking out of a clear blue sky. Like you just had no idea that this was coming. You just never know what a day holds. Now, a lot of the storms... You know, that we, like this week was stormy week, right? And we, we've got our apps, we got the radar, we hear the sirens, you know, we, get, we have warning time. Reminds me of the time when Lori and I took our kids up to Door County, Peninsula State Park. We loved camping there with the family. I grew up camping there with the family. And uh, we're, we got this great site. We're in Nicolay Bay. We got a site on the water. And it's like two in the morning. And all of a sudden you could hear the, you know, the rumbling the rumblings of the storm off in the distance, and you go, wow, it's coming. And how much time do we have? But we had time to prepare. So we were getting wiser as parents camping. So now we got mom and dad's tent, the boys got a tent, and the girls got a tent. See what I'm talking about? We are getting really smart here. So I got all the stuff off the edges in our tent. Then I woke up the girls and said, girls, the storm's coming. You got to get all the stuff away from the sides because if you never camped before and you got your stuff next to the side of the tent, everything just gets it's like a sponge. It just gets soaked. So I go to the boys and say, boys, boys, get up. Get everything off to the sides. Then I'm scouring around a campsite. I'm getting everything picked up, put away, batting down the hatches, putting in the car, getting ready. And then the storm just came. But we were prepared. We got ready for it. That's not usually how the storms of life go. It's, it's usually like this. It's just, I mean, it's just that, it's that phone call. It's, you know, it's, it's a friend of mine who, who, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning, you know, on, on Friday, Finds out she got laid off. And it's a job she loved. You know, it's that follow-up with the doctor and you find out what you just don't want to hear, the word cancer. It just, it just comes out of nowhere. comes out of nowhere. Now, that's Job's experience here. And as he's wrestling with God, he says this about his experience. Job 30, 21. You've turned cruel to me, God. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. 
You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. And you toss me about in the roar of the storm. And so let's not forget what, what the author wanted his hearers to know before we get to the storm. That he was a good man, that righteous people suffer. That God is in control. And that the storms of life can catch us completely unaware. I don't know who's been talking to you about following Jesus. I don't know who talked to you about following Jesus. But sometimes there's this kind of banter that goes like this. Hey, you know, the best thing about following Jesus is you get a new start in life and everything's going to be like easy. It's going to, man, it's, you're going you're to be happy all the time. You're going to be wealthier than you've ever been and you never get sick. And what, what happens is there's a confusion on the timeline, and they take the promises of heaven, and they bring them here to our day and say, this is what we should experience. And it's really important for me as your pastor to help you understand a theology of suffering. Jesus said we should expect it. Here's what he says in John 16. In this world, you will, not might, maybe one day, you will have what? Trouble, tribulation, trials. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul says, book of Acts, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' own brother, James, says, consider pure joy, James 1, 2, Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever, not if, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And he goes on to say, and here's why you can consider it joys. Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And this stronger faith, stronger muscle of faith helps you grow to be more like Christ. Brings you to maturity. We should expect that. So what does Job do? What does it look like to love God when your whole world's falling apart? What, what does it look like to keep following Christ when hard things are going on in your life? Who's going to win the bet? The devil or God? Verse 20, At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He was still holding on to the goodness of God. And we go, how did he do that? How is his first move worship? We get that he was, that, that, that he was knocked to his feet. We get that. We understand the mourning, right? The shaved head, the, the, the ashes, right? We, we understand that. How, do, how does he do that? Well, let's, let's wait on that just a second, and let's notice what he does. So the first thing he does, and this is a really important thing, because it's, it's not the natural move. When something hard happens to us, not always, but especially if we're new in our relationship with God, 
and we don't have as much experience of walking with God, it's easy to just go, well, man, if this is who you are, and this is what you do to people who love you and want to follow you, then nuts to you, God. And you do this, you're moving back, you're moving away. So what do we see here? We see him in all of, and can we even imagine? I mean, some of us right here, we've lost spouses, we've lost brothers and sisters, and, and we've lost parents, and, and uh, we've lost children. And, and a lot of times we, get, we go, I, I can't imagine what this person, the, the grief of just that one loss, and then just think about all of it. And what he does is he brings all of that hurt and brokenness and this just big, this just like eternal groan, these, these sobbing heaves, the, the, the snotty tears. Really, he, just, he moves towards God, acknowledging that God is, and he brings God his pain. I don't think that's a natural move. And I think if you don't know God, it'll only be by the grace of God that he would have us move in that way. But that's what he does. That's what it looks like to worship God when your world falls apart. He brings his pain to God, and he submits again to who God is. He acknowledges that he's, he's just a man. I came into this world naked. I'm going to leave naked. Everything I have is from you. You gave, and because it's yours, you're king, you're on the throne, then you have the right to take it away. And so he acknowledges his trust in God, and the third thing he does is he doesn't allow the circumstances to redefine God's character. That is a huge part of the fight of faith. That when we're going through hard things, it is easy for us to doubt that God is good, that he's loving, that he cares for us, and he won't go there. So where he goes instead is, may the name of the Lord be praised. The older translations, blessed be the name of the Lord, that he's worthy of praise. And in all this, it says, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So if you're in a storm and these emotions are raging and the questions are flying, let me just say, God is big enough for all of that. Let me tip you off to something, though. For a lot of people, it was true for me, when you go through some really big loss, some really hard thing, sometimes it's actually really hard to go to church. So 15 years ago, when Lori was going through breast cancer and the treatments and everything, and the doctors were not giving a good prognosis, it didn't look good, I, I remember just kind of sneaking into the sanctuary there at College Church and sitting in a place I never sat before. I was like under the balcony in the back row of the gallery, and I'd slip in late just so nobody could see me because I was just a pile and a bundle of emotion. And it was just raw. And I found that when you're in survival mode, like you don't have time for emotion, but there's something about slowing down and being in church and just kind of it all catches up. And then it's like, whoa, this is like intense and I'm not in control of it and I can't even sing. I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just a mess. And I've talked to people 
I said, I can't, I can't go to church. I can't go to church until I get it all together, my emotions, because it's so embarrassing. And I don't want to, all the right reasons, right? I mean, in our minds, intellectually, all the right reasons. I, I don't want to distract, and it's so embarrassing, and I'll come back when I get it together. And so l- let me just turn that and say that actually coming to church helps us get it together. Let me turn it again. That coming to church helps the rest of us who may not be in that storm that you're in right now keep it together. Because in coming here, you're coming to family who has a theology of suffering. Our, our, our conclusion should not be Job's, Job's friends. Oh, man, if you just had more faith, if you would just get you know, to, to repenting about your sinful life. And trust me, sometimes we suffer because of sin. I, I'm not talking about that, but let's remember this. We never suffer the punishment. We actually can't suffer the punishment. That's why, that's what Jesus did. We suffer the consequences of it. And so I come to church to, to persevere in faith, embracing all that's hard, with the help of my brothers and sisters in Christ, as together we're looking at our great God, keeping our eyes on his son. And then something powerful happens that you don't think about when you're going through the storm and you're so embarrassed about, oh, I'm a mess. You don't think about the powerful dynamic that your faith has in the storm to other people around you. So I've got this huge advantage from you guys. I see, I see you. I see each week, and I don't know everybody's story, but I, you know, 11 years in now, I know a lot of people's stories. And you know people's stories. I just know more of it. And what happens when in the midst of your suffering and pain, and I see you singing words of praise, and I hear you just, and I see you listening and wanting to understand God's word, and I see you still serving and caring about other people. Man, it is like a huge thing for me and my faith to say, God is real, God is enough, and this person is living it out in the midst of all these things that aren't straightened in their life and right in their life. And out of all of the loss and the anguish and the pain, they're reminding me that God is worth it, He's worth it, He's worthy. It's huge. And so we, 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 we want to be that kind of a church. I want you to have those kinds of relations. And here's the deal. There's just stuff. There are storms in our life that there, there, there may be nobody else who knows about it. And I, I hope more and more that the relationships we're developing in our life groups and our ministry teams at our campuses is... Um, they're safe, they're grace-filled, where we can just say there's something hard going on. And I know I'm not going to get hammered with, well, here's why, and if you just did this, and I know just how, like, that line, get rid of that line. I know just how you feel. That does not help anybody. I hope we're that kind of a church that is, is compassionate with each other and that grows in our faith through the, the struggles of faith in hard times. 
and that we're merciful and compassionate like God in the midst of it. And I hope we understand this, that nobody in Dane County is, is going to go, wow, I never thought of that. Nobody in Dane County is going to be impressed that we follow Jesus when their perception of our life is, dude, you like living the dream. Of course you love God. You see what I'm saying? But when, when actually we love God, when life stinks and is hard, and they see that even in the midst of all that we've lost or what we're struggling with, that our faith in God is holding us like an anchor in the storm. That gets people's attention. Totally gets people's attention. So I want to ask you a few questions in closing. If you were at the heart of the bet, and everything you had was taken away that you hold dear, who would win the bet? The, the question is, how did Job do that? And we go, well, it's but by the grace of God. But there's more in the text. It says that he feared God. He had a relationship with God. He knew things about God before that day that sustained him in the storm. He knew about God's goodness so that when life wasn't good, he held onto it and didn't curse him. Do we know God like that? We can. And when we know God like that, it makes sense to submit and to trust and to say you're king and you're in control even though this is just completely out of control. And one of the easiest ways, because one of the things we're trying to do in this series, the storyline, is to connect our life, our stories, to God's story. So the tagline is rooted in God's story, right? So the storyline. Suffering is the easiest place for us and other people to connect to the storyline of the Bible. Because the pinnacle of the storyline of the Bible is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God's promised only son, who suffered. So uniquely of all the other religions, Christianity, the Bible reveals a God who's not just creator, not just in control, but a God who suffers and who uses sufferings for great good. In fact, the greatest thing that's ever happened, happened through suffering. And so God understands your suffering. You've been slandered by friends, by family, at work. Jesus knows about slander. You, you've been abused physically, emotionally. Jesus knows that. Nailed to a cross. You've been humiliated. Jesus knows that, hanging naked on that cross. You've been mocked, yet yeah, all that. Yeah, he knows that. You've been betrayed. You've been denied. You've been misunderstood. You've, you've experienced injustice. I can tell you there isn't anything that you can experience in this life where you go, nobody understands. Jesus doesn't understand. Actually, he does. He not only understands suffering, he redeems suffering. 
And it's through our suffering that we connect in an unusual, it's a surprising connection to the mercy of God. James 5.11 says, this is the cliff notes on, on the book of Job. It says, here's the story of Job. It's about his persevering faith. And it's about the mercy and compassion of God. And it's, it's just, it's a non sequitur that we learn about God's mercy and compassion through suffering. Because it cer certainly doesn't seem like he's being compassionate. But it's because our suffering can connect us to the cross, God's suffering. And we can have hope that he not only understands, but he can redeem it. And we go, how could anything good come out of that? And all we got to do is just chase him back to the cross. How could anything good come out of that? And yet the greatest good came out of that. And so, I, I want you to know God. I want you to know God as you look through the lens of his son so that you know he's good and that he's merciful and that he not only understands, but he can sustain you in this and take you through this. And Job's story ends with he got two times more of everything he lost, and he lived another 140 years. And our story, when Christ makes all things right, is we get a million times more than we ever lost, and we live forever. He's worth it. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus so that whatever we lose, whatever struggles we're in, we will always be able to say by the grace of God, and though it's a struggle, God, you're good. Jesus, you're worth everything. Let's pray. So, Father God, I just pray for my brothers and sisters who are going through it right now. Thank you for understanding our frailty. Thanks for being big enough to allow room for shaking heads and fists and the questions of why. And thanks for letting us be messy in this fight of faith and your unconditional love that sustains us, that nothing can separate us from that. Lord, I, I pray for those who are in the storm and wonder if it's ever going to end. I pray for those who are just coming out of it and just so beat up. I pray for those this week who have no idea that lightning's going to strike out of a clear blue sky. I pray that this would be a church that loves well in the midst of pain and suffering and holds out the worth of who you are in a walk with you to make you big and great and to make people hungry to know this great God who gave up your only son for us. In his name we pray, amen.